This is Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. And sometimes a regular ordinary guy gets to have his name go down in history in a very big way. And it happened to a guy named Dick Heller, who happened to be working in security in a government building in Washington, D.C., when he sued the government of Washington, D.C. over a law that prevented him from legally owning a handgun. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court, and Dick Heller won. It was District of Columbia versus Heller, and it was the landmark gun rights case of all time, where the Supreme Court ruled only in 2008 that the Constitution guaranteed to every American a personal right to bear arms. And if it is that obvious, then perhaps people who aren't happy with how that has turned out might want to argue that perhaps that right never should have been put into the Constitution in the first place. And what a debate that would be, as we are about to find out. Yes or no to this statement. The constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. A debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. We are at the Kaufman Music Center in New York. We have four superbly qualified debaters, two against two, Americans all, but they're divided on this motion. The constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. As always, our debate goes in three rounds, and then our live audience in New York City votes to choose the winner, and only one side wins. Our motion, again, is the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. Let's meet the team arguing for the motion, trying to convince you that the right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. Let's welcome first, ladies and gentlemen, Alan Dershowitz. And Alan, uh, you're a professor at, Har- at Harvard Law School. You've played parts in these cases, the Pentagon Papers, Bush versus Gore, the WikiLeaks investigation, the defense of O.J. Simpson. We have heard about those cases. Um, um, but I, on the back cover of your recent memoir, you just came out with a memoir called Taking the Stand. You quote Noam Chomsky, who says, Dershowitz is not very bright and strongly opposed to civil liberties. And you quote him. So you're giving the whole thing away to the other side here? Well, my high school teachers said the same thing. And so I think you guys have to give me a little break. These guys are all smarter than I am. So here I am. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, Alan Dershowitz, give him a break. And Alan, your partner in this debate is? My partner in this debate is the very, very distinguished professor, uh, Sandy Levinson, who's just written his own great book. Ladies and gentlemen, Sandy Levinson. Sandy's great book is called Framed America's 51 Constitutions and the Crisis of Governance. He's a professor of law uh, at the University of Texas and a professor of government there, too. In 1989, Sandy, uh, you wrote an article in the Yale Law Journal that is really credited with reshaping the entire debate over gun rights in this country, which was not much of a debate up to that point. So this whole thing is your fault? Well, if I get an obituary um, in the New York Times... Uh, when the time comes, no doubt that article will be the lead. Well, I hope you're not thinking about that right now. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Sandy Levinson. Our motion is the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. And here to convince you to vote against this motion, I want to introduce, ladies and gentlemen, David Kopel. And David, uh, you're research director at the Independence Institute, co-author of the first uh, law school textbook on the Second Amendment, 
And in the case of District of Columbia versus Heller, the landmark Supreme Court gun rights case, you were a member of the oral argument team. You are also a member of the NRA. You are also a member of the ACLU. How do you put dinner parties together? The trick is you make the pre-dinner prayer optional, and that makes the ACLU folks happy. And then you have a lot of sharp <laughs> knives around, and the, the NRA people are content. <laughs> All right. Thanks very much, David Copel, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. And uh, David, and your partner is? My partner is the genial genius Eugene Volokh, perhaps the most important First Amendment scholar in the United States today. Ladies and gentlemen, Eugene Volokh. Eugene, uh, you're a professor of law at UCLA. Uh, The reason that you were just referred to as a genius is that according to the Tuscaloosa News profile done in 1981, when you were 12 years old and you were a sophomore at UCLA, uh, the newspaper reported that your IQ was 206. And and, and you recoiled earlier when I told you I was going to bring that up, so I thought maybe we could talk about your credit score instead. On a good day, it's better than that. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Eugene Volek and all of our debaters. Now, this is a debate. It's a contest of ideas, and our motion is the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. And by the time this debate has ended, we will have asked you, our live audience in New York, to vote twice on this debate because you will be the judges of the winners. Uh, before the debate, we'll, you will, we will ask you to vote before the debate and once again after the debate. And the team whose numbers have changed the most in percentage point terms will be declared our winner. So let's go to the keypads at your seat and we'll be getting on to round one in just a moment. Let's go to these keypads at your seat, and we'll have you vote your position as you come in off the street. The motion is the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. If you agree with this motion at this point, we want you to push number one. And if you disagree, push number two. And if you're undecided, push number three. You can ignore the other keys. Um, and we're going to lock this out in just a minute. And just to repeat this, the end of the debate, same thing. We have you vote another time. And the team whose numbers have moved the most in percentage points from this starting point will be declared our winner. On to round one. Opening statements by each debater, uninterrupted. They are seven minutes each. The motion is the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. And here to persuade you to vote for this motion, let's welcome Sanford Levinson. Ladies and gentlemen, you're a professor of law as well as professor of government at the University of Texas, Austin. Um, And, oh, actually, I'm repeating myself. So, Sanford, I'm going to give you one more great big backup roundup, and we're just going to keep going. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome to arguing for the motion Sanford Levinson. Thank you. I want to begin by repeating a point that Bob Rosencrantz made. This is not a debate about policy. As it happens, I can't completely speak for my colleague, Professor Dershowitz, but I would very much oppose, for example, a federal law banning guns independently of the Second Amendment because it is very, very clear that there is a critical mass of Americans who would be vehemently opposed to that it would just add to the divisions in the country, and it would increase the number of criminals 
in the country because just as with drug laws and gambling laws and the like, there is no reason to believe that such a law could genuinely be enforced. Most enforcement requires on a willingness to comply with the law that one regards as relatively legitimate, and this law would not be regarded, I think, in that capacity. It's also true with regard to a number of other um, gun control uh, statutes that are proposed that I have distinctly mixed feelings about many of them on a variety of policy grounds, but fortunately we're not here to debate that. Nor do I think we are here to debate the one true meaning of the Second Amendment, um, as interesting as that topic is and about which, indeed, I have written. Rather, I want to emphasize the topic that is in front of us. The constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. Now, one reason I relish this statement of the question is that I'm one of those relatively rare people, I will admit, who actually believe there should be a new constitutional convention because I believe that a number of provisions of the Constitution have outlived their usefulness. I wouldn't even say that the Second Amendment or the right to bear arms is the one that has most outlived its usefulness, but I'm really quite happy to argue that in 2013, the kinds of considerations that led to the placement of the Second Amendment in the Bill of Rights, which Bob Rosencrantz summarized, I think, uh, very well, have outlived their usefulness. So if we were going to have a debate in 2013 about what substantive rights, as well as what structures, uh, the Senate, bicameralism, presidential veto, and stuff like that, what would a 2013 or 2015 constitution look like? Would it include a substantive right in the United States Constitution to bear arms? And I would argue that the answer is no. Let me also emphasize that this is a different question from whether state constitutions should include a right to bear arms. Eugene has written one of the definitive articles showing, I don't know what the current number is, but I think it's over 40 state constitutions uh, do protect a right to bear arms. And that raises a very, very important question of whether we need to have that in the United States Constitution as well. Let me give you two principal reasons why a constitutionalized right to bear arms, instead of a right to bear arms that would simply be fought out in the political process, and all of us know that the political process today um, is tilted either legitimately or illegitimately, that's the topic of yet another debate that we need not have this evening, generally in favor of the rights of gun owners. So let me give you the two reasons why I think the Second Amendment has outlived its usefulness in the 21st century. The first reason is precisely that it is anti-federal. That is to say, one of the anomalies, sometimes it's very difficult to tell the players without a scorecard, 
in the debate about gun rights. There are many, many people who define themselves as conservatives who rail against a rampaging national government that believes in one-size-fits-all solutions to national problems. Well, this is not necessarily what Heller decides, but it is what the Supreme Court decided two years later in the McDonald case, where it held that every state in the union has to tow a single line. Louis Brandeis spoke very eloquently of states as little laboratories of experimentation. Most states have chosen to experiment in favor of gun rights. There are some states or cities, uh, very dense cities like Washington, D.C., that would prefer different experiments. Or in New York itself, one can well imagine a particular policy for the great cities of New York and a very different policy for uh, upstate New York where there are far, far more hunters than is the case in Manhattan, say. And one of the things that a single national constitutional amendment, as interpreted by the Supreme Court, does is to stifle that kind of federalism. And I think that's a mistake. But there's a second real problem with constitutionalizing the right to bear arms in the 21st century. As Mr. Rosencrantz suggested, the right to bear arms, or the Second Amendment, had a kind of cosmetic value until 2008. It's not that people didn't write about it. I wrote about it. Eugene wrote about it. A number of people found it very interesting. But it played remarkably little role in actual American law. Beginning with Heller, it does play a role. But what does that mean? It means that you turn over decision-making power to a group of federal judges who are highly divided, who have no expertise in this area, and who make often um, quite uh, remarkable, even unreasoned distinctions. Thus, for example, in Heller, Justice Scalia says that Dick Heller is protected, which I think is a perfectly plausible argument, but he suggests that Martha Stewart is not because she actually lied to an FBI agent and is thus a convicted felon. I don't think judges should be making those kinds of decisions. I think legislators should. Thank you, Sandy Levinson. Our motion is the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. And now here to try to persuade you to vote against this motion. Um, let's welcome Eugene Volokh. He is the Gary T. Schwartz Professor of Law at UCLA and founder and co-founder of the Volokh Conspiracy, one of the most widely read legal blogs in the country. Ladies and gentlemen, Eugene Volokh. Uh, thank you very much for having me here, and it's such a great pleasure to be uh, on the same panel with um, uh, David and uh, Alan and Sandy. Uh, they're all top scholars, and I also reckon all of them as, as friends of mine. Uh, and uh, so let me start with something I think we all agree on on the panel, and I think probably virtually everybody, perhaps everybody in the audience agrees on, too, and that is that there's a basic human right to self-defense. Uh, now, there are, of course, debates about the particular boundaries of that right, but there's a core to that right that every state in the union recognizes. Uh, I'm sure it's well-recognized outside the U.S. as well. If somebody is threatening you with imminent death, 
serious injury, rape, kidnapping, uh, you're entitled to use force, even deadly force, in order to defend yourself if that is necessary. Uh, that's very broadly agreed on. And I think it's agreed on because it is a basic human right. Uh, so I think there's little dif difference about that. But then there's the question, what does that right entail? And I want to argue that a right to self-defense, like other rights, entails the right, at least presumptively, to have the tools that are necessary to reasonably, effectively defend yourself. Let's take an example, the right to control whether you want to reproduce, whether you want to have children or not. Imagine somebody says, oh, sure, I'm all for that right. You can use birth control so long as it's the rhythm method. We wouldn't say that's a serious argument. We'd say it's a parody of an argument, right? We'd say, well, of course, the right to control your reproductive future in, uh, involves the right to use tools that are reasonably necessary in order to effectively do that. That's not just for that right. It's also for speech. Your right to speak doesn't just mean the right to move your mouth. It's the right to use the Internet, use various other technologies that are reasonably necessary to effectively defend yourself. And guns are reasonably necessary to effectively defend yourself. Um, our own bodies, you know, we sometimes can defend ourselves with that, but uh, not when our assailant is armed with a gun or otherwise. And even if unarmed, if the assailant is sufficiently big, sufficiently strong, sufficiently ruthless, the only way we can effectively defend ourselves in many situations is with a gun, often not by shooting it. The overwhelming majority of all defensive gun uses involve just threatening to use it. Uh, just a couple of thought experiments. I'm sure some, uh, some of you live in places, uh, in houses where on the front lawn it says, protected by armed patrol. I suspect few of you live in houses where on the front lawn it says, protected by unarmed patrol. I would be willing to bet that. Um, so in a sense, really, those, of, those people who have the money to have armed guards, either personal bodyguards or people driving by, uh, are already entitled to essentially take advantage of this technology to defend themselves. Uh, the right to bear arms gives people the ability uh, to do that, even if they can't afford to hire someone, if they are their own armed guards. That's what the right to keep and bear arms allows people to do that. And I think it's no surprise, then, that 44 of the state constitutions specifically protect uh, a right to bear arms, uh, and over 40 of them clearly um, in a way that it's an individual right to bear arms. And this isn't just some weird anachronism. This dates back from the Pennsylvania Constitution in 1776 to the Kansas Constitution uh, in, I think, 2012, and several constitutions uh, uh, in the preceding, uh, in the preceding uh, a couple of decades as well. Now, some people may say, well, okay, fine, that's a, it's reasonable to say there's a presumption in favor of being able to have tools needed to defend yourself, but uh, maybe it should be rebuttable if there's solid enough evidence that, uh, uh, that uh, abandoning guns or seriously limiting guns would, un would uh, uh, protect us so much that that outweighs whatever loss to self-defense there may be, well, then we should do that. Well, interesting argument, but there is no such evidence. So in 2004, 2004 uh, the National Research Council appointed a uh, committee of, um, uh, of um, uh, uh, scholars, of criminologists. Uh, they put out this very nice report. You can read it for free online. The, the consensus was, the, the, based on the existing studies, there's no evidence that either extra gun ownership or extra gun restrictions uh, would, uh, would make people safer. Centers for Disease Control in 2005, similar study, similar result. Uh, the other, other studies as well from uh, New York's own New York University, James Jacobs, book says, can gun control work? His answer, not as an ideologue on this, is probably not, at least based on what we know. 
Now, of course, Sandy might say, all right, these are all interesting questions, but why do they need to be resolved as a constitutional matter by judges? Well, one reason might be that we do have a tradition of resolving, indeed on a national level, questions of basic human rights. As to free speech, as to searches and seizures, a variety of other things, we have taken them off of the federalism process. We have uh, set them up as, as human rights uh, for the country as a whole, but still one could very reasonably ask this question as whether this makes sense. Well, I think the answer to that, you have to think practically. And you have to think about what is likely to be effective in our country, given the political realities. And so for that, you have to ask yourself, what do you want? If you're interested in gun control, what is it that you want? Now, if what you want, so you might want gun bans or handgun bans. Or you might want modest gun controls, background checks, restrictions on mentally ill people, limits on size of of, uh, large uh, capacity magazines. You have to decide what is it that you want. Now, if you want the former, if you want total gun bans or handgun bans, well, uh, good luck to you with the war on guns that you're going to have to get, even if you can repeal the Second Amendment, even if you can persuade people the Second Amendment has outlived its usefulness. There are going to be lots of people you won't persuade. There are 300 million guns in the country. They're not just going away. Criminals will have access to them. And as Sandy pointed out, a lot of otherwise law-abiding people will become criminals because they will insist on retaining them. Ah, people say, well, but, but that's not what we want, right? We want modest gun controls. That's what I always hear. You know, probably most people do want just modest gun controls. But if you want modest gun controls, the Second Amendment in court already doesn't stand in your way. Courts have routinely upheld against right to bear arms challenges a wide range of modest gun controls. Uh, to be sure, those are hard to enact at the federal level and in many states, though not so hard in other states. But that's a political constraint, not a legal constraint. The Second Amendment is not a barrier uh, to the enactment of those gun controls. Some people think it should be, but as a descriptive matter, it actually hasn't been and isn't likely to be. But what's more, if you want modest gun controls, the Second Amendment is your friend. And any attempt to repeal it, that is what your enemy would be. Because all of those people who have been assured, oh, I'm not going to take away your guns. Oh, if you think people are taking, we're going to take away your guns, you're just paranoid. If there is indeed a move to repeal the Second Amendment, which I think is the implication of the conclusion that it's outlived, it's useful, this would be, that would turn it all, make it all sound like lies and make people worry that indeed that's what's going to happen, that people will be coming for their guns. So if you want modest gun controls, I'm not saying you should, but if you do, you should be arguing that the Second Amendment has not outlived its usefulness. Part of its usefulness, besides self-defense, is precisely the assurance it gives to people that people are not coming for their guns, as so many people, including the President, Thank you, have assured them. Thank you. And a reminder of what's going on. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters arguing it out over this motion in two teams of two. The constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. We have heard two of the debaters, and now on to the third. Let's welcome to the uh, lectern uh, Alan Dershowitz. He is the Felix Frankfurter Professor of Law at Harvard and best-selling author of 30 books, including Taking the Stand, My Life and the Law. Alan Dershowitz. Thank you. What a great and powerful argument. No wonder he's considered a genius. But let's think about his argument for a minute. The argument was really not so much in favor of the Second Amendment. It was in favor of the right of self-defense. You are right. We all agree there should be a right of self-defense. So don't you agree with me that it would have been better if the Second Amendment had been written as everybody has the right of self-defense? Then we could argue whether or not guns were necessary, what kinds of guns, what kinds of restrictions. You would also then have to debate whether or not guns were permissible for hunting because hunting is not part of self-defense. 
The Second Amendment reads rather differently. It starts out by saying a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state than the right of the people to bear and keep arms. So I think everybody would agree that the first clause of the Second Amendment, a well-regulated militia, has outlived its usefulness. We do not have militias, state militias. They are as anachronistic as the Third Amendment, talking about that we can't quarter troops. Now, that doesn't mean that I would want to amend the Bill of Rights. I don't want to amend the Third Amendment. I prefer to leave it there, because if you start amending the Third Amendment, Sandy will have a constitutional convention, and he'll have people who might start amending the First Amendment, and the Fourth Amendment, and the Fifth Amendment. So I'm happy to leave all the amendments there, as long as we acknowledge that the Second Amendment, like the Third Amendment, has outlived its usefulness. My point is it would have been so much better if we had established the primary right in the Constitution, the right of self-defense. Then we would have nothing to debate. We would all agree there is a right to self-defense. We would then be able to debate what the derivative right is from the right of self-defense, just like we debate today as to what the derivative right of privacy is from the Fourth Amendment, the right of the people to be secure in their homes and places. But we have to distinguish between the primary right and the secondary right. The primary right should be the right of self-defense. Of course, I throw the question to my distinguished opponents. Are they conceding that the Second Amendment should be interpreted to abolish the right of hunters to own weapons that are useful only in killing animals and are not useful in defending one's home or oneself? Should one have to demonstrate that one is using the weapon for self-defense? Would you rewrite the Second Amendment if you had the choice and abolish the term a well-regulated militia and say instead, quote, the right of self-defense being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to, care and, uh, to keep and bear arms shall be infringed. It seems to me, from Professor Volokh's argument, that he would support such an amendment, or at the very least, if he had been a framer of the Constitution, he would have preferred an amendment which started out with the right of self-defense being essential. So I think you've helped defeat your own argument by creating a new basic fundamental right and then deriving the right that's in the Constitution from that fundamental right. And so the question remains, what difference would it make? The difference is fundamental. I agree with you. Basic rights should be recognized by constitutions. Virtually every country in the world today recognizes the right of self-defense. Four countries in the world, Mexico, Guatemala, Haiti, and the United States, I think, recognize the right to bear arms. So the vast majority of countries feel and believe that you can have a right of self-defense without necessarily having a fundamental right to bear arms. It seems to me that that's a relevant consideration. And I agree with my distinguished colleague that the laboratories of democracy should be allowed to operate. And we should not federalize this constitutional right. We should not be the only leading industrial country in the world that has, as a fundamental right, the right to bear arms. What do the four countries that have a right to bear arms have in common? What does Mexico, Guatemala, Haiti, and the United States have in common? They all have extraordinarily high crime rates, extraordinarily high murder rates, extraordinarily high 
death rates. I don't want to get into the argument because I agree, all of us would agree here, the statistics cut both ways. You can make arguments in favor of the fact that guns cause death, other arguments that guns prevent death. But look at the reality in a common sense way. Look at the fact that we are a country infested with murder and death and gun injuries and suicide and accidents in the home. It cannot be a coincidence that the easy availability of guns in our country has nothing to do with high murder rates. That just can't be a coincidence. Yes, there are cultural differences. To be sure, Japan is not the United States. England is not the United States. But when you look at the crime rates in those countries and do all the comparisons you want, you can compare inner cities in one country with inner cities in another country, and I know you can get all kind of data to support your conclusions. But at bottom, the question really comes to what kind of society do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a society where we are forced to defend ourselves by guns, where the more the bad guys get guns, the more the good guys have to arm and get guns. I'm reminded of the great episode from All in the Family where Archie Bunker gets to do an op-ed on television. And he says, the way to solve the problem of airplane hijacking is very simple. Require everybody who gets on an airplane to have a gun. That way, nobody will hijack an airplane. Do you want to get on a plane in which everybody has a gun? And do you want to live in an America where everyone has a gun? If the answer to that question is no, let's acknowledge that the Second Amendment is anachronistic, has outlived its usefulness. Let's not abolish or amend the Second Amendment. Let's construe it reasonably to permit gun control, to limit the ownership of guns to the right of self-defense, perhaps with, here I'm going to go further than you, perhaps also allow hunters to have limited access to guns. That's my position. Thank you. Thank you, Alan Dershowitz. Our motion is the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. And here to argue against this motion, David Kopel. He is research director in, at the Independence Institute, an adjunct professor at Denver University's Sturm College of Law and associate policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome David Kopel. Thank you. Thank you. When I'm not in New York City, I spend just about all my waking hours in one particular case in a civil rights lawsuit in federal district court in Colorado where I represent 55 of Colorado's elected sheriffs who were suing against the unconstitutional, extreme, and highly immodest laws pushed down on Colorado by Mr. Bloomberg's successful lobbying last spring. In the United States Supreme Court, I presented briefs on behalf of a very large national coalition of law enforcement organizations in District of Columbia versus Heller and McDonald versus Chicago. Included in that coalition are the two organizations of pol national organizations of police trainers, the police who train the police. My clients, like the vast majority of law enforcement officers, according to every survey of law enforcement officers ever, ever done, strongly support the Second Amendment and oppose laws which make it difficult for law-abiding citizens to own firearms for protection because they believe 
that guns in the right hands substantially enhance public safety. What's some of the evidence for this belief? Well, in the United States, when a burglary takes place against a home, 13% of the time, the victims are in the home. That's called a hot burglary or a home invasion burglary. In contrast, in England, the rate of home invasion burglaries is 59%. In the Netherlands, it's 45%. And this is because in the United States, people can lawfully own guns for self-defense in their home and have them readily available for self-defense in an emergency, unlike in those other nations. Studies of working burglars in Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and St. Louis have consistently found that burglars, most burglars in the United States, work quite hard, spend the largest portion of their working day trying to make sure that there's nobody home because they perceive a very high risk of getting shot if they do come in when somebody is home. And in fact, in the United States, the risk that a burglar will be shot exceeds the risk that he will go to prison. And if you think prison has some deterrent value against burglary, and I certainly do, then home self-defense has an even stronger uh, protective value. The Centers for Disease Control is not a pro-gun propaganda organization. They conducted a national survey in 1994. They found that that year there were 503,000 defensive gun uses against burglars, usually without a, in the United States, usually without a shot even being fired. And in 99% of the ca those cases, when the victim confronted the burglar, the burglar decided it was time to leave work early. <laughs> now, if you look at when burglaries do happen against victims in the home, they frequently lead to not only a burglary, but to assaults against people in the home. If you simply take our 13% home invasion burglary rate and scale that up to the 45% rate of some other countries, that would lead to an additional half million assaults every year in this country. That by itself would raise the national crime rate by 9%. Guns are not only useful against burglars and for deterring burglars, but for self-defense in general. This summer, the Centers for Dis the National Research Council and the Institute of Medicine, two federal research centers, at the request of President Obama, put together an expert panel of the leading social scientists on firearms policy issues to provide recommendations for what future topics need to be researched and also on what topics has consensus been achieved among social scientists. What they said in their report was that the social science is clear that when a victim is attacked, using a firearm defensively leads to a lower rate of victim injury, to a lower rate of crime completion than any other protective strategy. It is the safest thing to do for the crime victim on a broad-scale statistical basis. And they also said the social science is clear that guns are used at least for good, lawful, defensive purposes, at least as often as they are used for criminal purposes. Of course, the benefit to law enforcement of this is enormous. In the fewer victimizations, the fewer crimes, the fewer people they have to respond to and help so they can help other people. Now, why is the Second Amendment necessary today? To protect people from local, bigoted, 
governments. It was necessary in the civil rights era when civil rights workers frequently had to arm themselves in the South for protection against the domestic terrorist organization known as the Ku Klux Klan when local police were often complicit with the Klan. It's why the Deacons for Defense and Justice were formed in Bogalusa, Louisiana in 1965 to successfully provide armed protection to organizations such as the Congress of Racial Equality. It was necessary in Washington, D.C., where Dick Heller spent every day as an armed guard at the Federal Judicial Center and was not allowed by the D.C. City Council to use any firearm in his home ever for lawful self-defense against a violent home invader. It was necessary in Chicago, where Otis McDonald, a 70-year-old Korean War veteran, received personal death threats from gangsters because of his anti-gang work. And Chicago said, well, you can have a rifle or a shotgun. He knew how to use a rifle. He'd been in the Korean War. But for his condition in the apartment he lived in, with his physical strength and agility and the current status it was, the handgun was the right choice for him for self-defense. And the bigoted city council of Chicago would not allow him to use that. And that's why the Second Amendment was necessary. And it's necessary in New York City right now. If you have a handgun permit in New York City, you can go on a trip. You can drive from Brooklyn all the way to Seattle and lawfully carry that gun in, every, in, in your car in every state across the country, and it's a good, secure thing to have in case your car breaks down in the middle of the night someplace on a deserted road. But the New York City Police Department won't let you take the handgun out of the city. There is no rational basis for that prohibition. It is purely for the oppression of gun owners to the detriment of self-defense, it is a dangerous law, and a Second Amendment lawsuit will likely be necessary to remove that. I urge you to vote against this deadly, dangerous proposition to vote for public safety based on the recognition that today the Second Amendment remains vitally necessary to the security of a free state. Thank, Thank you. you, David Kopel. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. Keep in mind how you voted at the top of the evening. Once again, we're going to have you vote right after the arguments are concluded, and the team whose numbers have changed the most in percentage point terms will be declared our winner. Now on to round two, and round two is where the debaters address one another and take questions from me and from you in the audience. We have two teams of two. The motion is the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. The team that's arguing for this motion, that it's outlived its usefulness, Sandy Levinson and Alan Dershowitz, uh, we have heard them argue that, number one, they're telling you that they're not here arguing to ban all guns, they're not here arguing to repeal the Second Amendment, but they are arguing that the uh, right to bear arms has no place in the Constitution, that this should be left up to local governments and to states, that judges shouldn't be involved in making these policy decisions. They also uh, are making the argument that um, the, the language as... Uh, uh, written really doesn't talk about a right to self-defense, that the right to bear arms is not the same thing as a right to self-defense. And if we want a right to self-defense, let us put it in the Constitution. But right now, it's just not there. The team arguing against the motion, David Kopel and Eugene Volek, are trying to get you to vote against this motion that the right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. They say the right to self-defense is a basic human right, and so is uh, access to the tools needed to carry out and execute that right. They uh, say th uh, clearly that they believe that guns do deliver that self-defense and went through several examples of that. 
but they also say that it needs to be in the Constitution because there's a bigotry at the local level against gun ownership, and it needs the protection of a constitutional amendment, much in the same way as civil rights have in the past. So that's where the two sides stand on this, basically. And I want to go to the side that's arguing uh, against the motion, uh, trying to convince this audience uh, that the constitutional right to bear arms remains vital, has usefulness. And to, to bring to you something that your opponent, Alan Dershowitz, said, uh, in which he said, sure, you guys are arguing the right to self-defense. They concede their, that's a basic human right, but they also insist it's just not there in the language of the Second Amendment. It says right to bear arms, not the right to self-defense, and they say that's a difference. Which of you would like to take that on? Let me Eugene start Volek. real quick. The second, the second Amendment is the right to keep and bear arms. As Heller and McDonald say, it's the right to keep and bear arms for all lawful purposes, self-defense, hunting, target shooting, whatever. It's not limited to self-defense. Certainly self-defense is the most important purpose of that right uh, under Heller. That's what uh, the Supreme Court said was that the, uh, the core purpose of the right, but the Supreme Court didn't say that was the only purpose of the right. The right is for all lawful purposes, and modern constitutions, state constitutions, uh, say so more explicitly, but their, their point is the same as the okay, second. Okay, so Alan Dershowitz, I, I think your opponent, David Coppola, is saying it's pretty obvious that's what everybody means by the right to bear arms, oh, that it's the right to self-defense. I think the Second Amendment historically gives the right of the people the right to use guns against their government. Uh, as Jefferson said over and over again, we need to have armed citizens in the state to make sure that there are no monarchies trying to take over. Uh, it was a right of revolution. Uh, there was no debate, as far as I know, about uh, self-defense. It may have been implicit, but the Second Amendment's language, and many of the people who are the strongest supporters of the Second Amendment are literalists. They go to the original understanding. They look at the words, why are you prepared to excise the first, whatever it is, ten words from the constitutional, well-regulated militia? being necessary to the security of a free state. Are you prepared to concede that a well-regulated militia is no longer necessary to the security of a free state? Uh, no. David Cook. Uh, you want a revolution. No, David Volek. I'm no. sorry, Eugene Volek. I want neither. Huh? I want neither. Uh, so the, I think on this point, the court was quite right. Uh, that if you look at the way the word militia was understood around the time of the framing and actually remains a legal definition of the term, although not a common lay definition, militia meant the armed adult, at the time, male citizenry, the times being what they were. And well-regulated meant basically well-functioning, well-trained. So really what they were saying is that an armed well-functioning citizenry, uh, well-functioning as a body that knows how to use its weapons, uh, is necessary to the security of a free state. And that because of that, because, and this is a preamble that explains the, uh, the rationale or part of the rationale for the right, because of that, the government shouldn't be able to disarm the people. But, but now, was, there's, the, was, the, the, was the point to defend the, the state or to defend your own home? Which, the point was both, and that is one of the things that the court, uh, I think, correctly so points Alan, here's what you're overlooking. If you read things like Stephen Holbrook's The Founder's Second Amendment and the other intellectual sources, very clearly they understood self-defense against a lone criminal and self-defense against a tyrannical government as the same thing, except the latter was larger in scale. It's all self-defense, all the way up, all the way down. So what does well-regulated mean? What you're trying to do is now say that everybody who owns an individual gun has to be part 
of a regulated militia. They have to come to the green every day and march and well, do... Well, but, 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 they're, not, the they're, but they're not saying right? that, Alan. They're not saying no. that. They're saying, I think what you're, you're saying, and I'm not taking sides, but I just want to bring clarity to it. I think that's a straw dog. I think they're saying that implicit in the fact that the, if there were a militia, that the guys have the guns in the house they, and they can also defend their house uh, and they need to have them to use them whether the purpose was a militia or not. But we don't have a well-regulated militia now. We don't have any kind of militia now. So I think you're conceding that the first part of the amendment has outlived its usefulness. We win at least the first half of the debate, right? (laughs) David Kopel, and I'd like you to respond to what he just said. Sure. Uh, Thomas Cooley, the greatest constitutional scholar of the latter 19th century, addressed your exact point, and he said that the interpretation you're following would defeat the purpose of the Second Amendment because that would mean the government, by neglecting the militia, could thereby destroy the right to arms. It's too, we might be a lot, have more public safety if there were something to encourage more regulated, well trained citizen defense patrols, for example, in communities. But that's up to like the government. The Ku Klux, we, like the we, Ku Klux Klan. We, we, uh, can't, we can't force them to do that. Let me bring in but Sandy. The, the government's neglect does not destroy the underlying right. Sandy Levinson, I want to return to this issue of the, of the, of the absence of an explicit right to self-defense in the Constitution. You, you, want to, you would love to draw up the Constitution over again. Um, uh, you'd like to start all over. And, and if you did, would you write in, uh, whether it's an amendment or in the body of the Constitution, would you write in a basic right to self-defense? I would certainly consider it. It it makes a lot of sense. But quite obviously, as I suggested in my opening remarks, it's a very, very capacious right. Does it extend to Martha Stewart, a convicted felon? And to me, it seems the answer should be yes. If Martha Stewart had knocked over a bank with a gun, I'm not sure I would say that she preserves her constitutional right to self-defense. What about non-U.S. nationals? who live in the United States, uh, you know, do they not bleed? Do they not have lives that are threatened? And then what about illegal aliens? The Fifth Circuit, as I'm sure Eugene and David both know, split two to one on whether or not uh, a federal law that prohibits illegal aliens from possessing guns is constitutional. Their argument was that the point of the original Second Amendment, and I think they're correct, I didn't do adequate justice to Bob Rosencrantz's um, initial introduction, I think the historical origins of the Second Amendment really do have to do with citizen militias Does and that, organizing to overthrow corrupt governments. And the argument was that an illegal alien isn't part of the American community politically, which, which is certainly true. Uh, that doesn't mean that an illegal alien has no right to self-defense. The right of the people to keep their arms throughout American history has had a self-defense component as well. We see that in the Pennsylvania Constitution of 1776, which talked about the right of the people to def- uh, keep their arms in defense of themselves and the states. Later on, it was more clearly even changed to each citizen defense of himself and the state. that wasn't put in the U.S. Constitution. They knew about that, and they didn't put it in. But they talked about the right of the people to keep in their arms. What you're suggesting is that the Second Amendment you're, – you're suggesting the Second Amendment is obsolete in part because – it used, the framers used the term keep and bear arms there in a way that's different from the way that it was being commonly used in the coordinate state constitutions of the time. I think you're, you're creating an obsolescence of your own making. You're interpreting it in a strange way as saying, well, it wasn't intended to deal with self-defense, and now you're saying it's obsolete. 
Well, I'm saying it was intended no, throughout to, to deal with self-defense. It was also aimed at a means of deterring government tyranny. But, but the interest in self-defense has been always around. And if you look at court decisions of the okay. early 1800s, you, you all Liddell the time they but said you're that. you're focusing on the wrong words. I'm not denying that the right to bear arms might have some current relevance as part of a right of self-defense. What I am arguing is the prelude to the mm-hmm. operative words of the amendment clearly have become obsolete, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security. Now, the answer that David gives is you want the deacons of justice to be able to come and have an armed conflict with the Ku Klux Klan. Now, I was in the South during the Civil Rights Movement. The last thing Martin Luther King wanted was to arm the people and the civil rights workers. He wanted to confront violence with peace. And a well-regulated militia would have included the Ku Klux Klan. They were the citizens. They were the ones who were worried about the government taking away their civil right to have a segregated community. And the answer that my opponents give is if the Ku Klux Klan is armed, then we ought to arm civil rights workers and let's have a war. I think Martin Luther King gets the better of that argument. I I mean, David Koppel, I don't hear them saying that or even coming close to implying that. Even though it's a great, that was a great moment. <laughs> so, I, but I want to let the them respond of to this. Well, the, the, the point is David that Copeland. those who want the majorities that want to oppress minorities, like the Ku Klux Klan with local police connivance, they're always going to have arms. And you, I applaud your presence in the South. You perhaps might not have been on the summer march from Mississippi to Memphis led by Dr. King, where the deacons for defense were there and, in fact, were providing personal security for Dr. King himself. All right, I want to move on to and, a, I want to move on to a how slightly... Did that, how did that end up for Dr. King? Hmm? How did that end up for Dr. King? Not very well. I want to move on to... The availability uh, of a gun. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I, I want to I, move I, on I to another... I don't understand him. what you're saying. The assassins are going to have the guns. The question is whether people ought to be able no, to have ass- guns to defend themselves the as, as well. The assassins have an easier time getting the guns how, when they're easily available in society. How do you society? propose making it hard for an assassin in a country... How do you propose making it hard for a political assassin who is willing to throw away the rest of his life, essentially, for his act, making it hard for him to get a gun in a country where there are 300 million guns? That's, That's the point. Like, that there are 300 million guns. I want to live in a country where there are not 300 million guns. All right. So, well, so all but, right, I, yeah. I want to stop this for a moment. I want to stop this. Only, we're, we're starting to turn into a gun control debate here, which is not precisely what we're doing. What we're trying to focus on is the, is the function of this power being enshrined in the Constitution or not. And I want to return to that by going to something that Sandy Levinson said, where, where you basically were telling the other side that they don't really need to have this right enshrined in the Constitution and protected because the political process as it is what is already tilting, I think was the word you used, towards increasing gun rights. And I want you to take 30 seconds to push that point, and then I'd like to hear the response from your opponents, because I think they said the opposite. Okay. 90% of the American public, rightly or wrongly, but 90% of the American public thought that the Senate should at least take a vote on enhancing background checks. It never got to the floor of the Senate. Um, Last night, I think uh, um, the NRA invited people before the debate to chime in with their views, and I was told before we came out that the current vote is something like 43,000 against 
um, the motion and seven. I mean, on the Intelligence Squared website. Yes. Yes, we 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 were we experienced a blizzard of votes. Right. And um, and it's ninety. Uh, it's forty six thousand against the motion and seven hundred for the motion. And it's it, the the strongest argument for substantive constitutional rights is when you believe that a vulnerable vulnerable minority is likely to be victimized by what Americans learn to call the tyranny of the majority. Whatever your views are on gun control, at least right now and throughout most of American history, it is so wildly unlikely that the however many people own the 300 million guns, because most people who own guns, I think, own multiple guns, that they are comparable to Jehovah's Witnesses, say, or some other vulnerable minority, that they need the special concern of judges basically to make up public policy for the entire country. Okay, so let's let's have, actually, I'd like... I'd like to hear Dave, from David on that sure. because you raised this point that, in fact, the, uh, the constitutional amendment was required as a bulwark against the political process. Yeah. And your opponent is saying that the, the winds are blowing so heavily in your, in your direction that that's not necessary. Constitutional rights are not only for persecuted minorities. I don't think ABC, CBS, the New York Times, and the New York Daily News uh, are comparable to Jehovah's Witnesses either, and it's very important that there be a strong First Amendment to protect them. And in Nebraska, where the right to arms is culturally strong, the Second Amendment is still necessary for exactly one of the issues you raised, uh, the right of legal permanent resident aliens to obtain concealed carry permits to carry uh, handguns for lawful protection as, as law-abiding American citizens can do. And unfortunately, there are in this large and diverse country, just about anything that you can say is nationally popular is going to be nationally unpopular with some local group uh, of people who don't celebrate diversity and respect all rights. And in places like New York City and San Francisco and Chicago, with their irrationally extreme anti-gun administrations, absolutely the Second so Amendment David, is what important would, What would the United States them. look like without the Second Amendment? Everything else being equal, I know that's awkward, but everything else being equal, if the protection weren't there, where would we be in terms of gun ownership in this country? People in Washington, D.C. would have no right to defend themselves in their home against a violent home intruder, for Even example. if they voted that way. I, this is interesting. We're Owned hearing an argument for diversity that would deny the people of New York the right to show their diversity by saying, we don't want to be like Montana. We would much prefer to have fewer guns. That argument is rejected in the name of Diversity? Diversity is not suppressing someone else's rights. That's no part of diversity. Diversity is respecting everyone's human rights fully. And respecting them from a point of view of the majority prevails when you have different views and different cultures and different societies and different attitudes and different approaches. And if the people of New York City have a different view from your view, why should they not have the right to express that view and have it implemented? Because Isn't there a right to a gun-free society as well? Why don't we have that? Is there a right to blasphemy? Is there a right to a blasphemy-free society? Is there a right to to a no? Because blasphemy doesn't hurt anybody. So, but but the whole point of individual rights are that they are trumps 
on because, uh, on because as Sandy rule. Levinson said, you need to have the right to blasphemy, otherwise the Jehovah's Witnesses will be prosecuted. The reason ABC and NBC have the First Amendment rights is we can't distinguish between them and the Jehovah's Witness handing out a leaflet. The basic right belongs to the Jehovah's Witness. The derivative me, right uh, belongs to ABC. I want to bring the Sandy, only reason we have hold, hold everyone. Sandy Levinson is yeah. much too polite for this debate, so I'm going <laughs> to... I'm creating an opening for him, and you're to step through, Sandy. I'm just a Texan. Um, I think we ought to be aware that there's something strange. Again, what everyone's views are about gun rights in the United States, there's something strange in referring to them as a human right because, and here's, I think, where Alan's point comes home, it really is quite remarkable that among the roughly 190 countries or so that are currently in the UN, there are a grand total of four that recognize some kind of constitutionalized right to bear arms, and you discover that the Mexico Constitution allows reasonable regulation. So it may be, I mean, this is, again, a topic for a different sort of conversation. It may be that there is something about American culture that recognizes that it's a right within the United States. It's part of American exceptionalism, uh, that guns are treated much more seriously than anywhere else in the world. But human rights arguments really do have a universalistic overtone. We talk about intervening in foreign countries because they don't recognize human rights. So does David but, suggest but, but aren't that they saying, we invade I, I just, one or get, another of the hundred? Just for clarity countries? on what they said, they didn't say that guns are the basic right. They said self-defense is the basic right. But, but guns are necessary for self-defense. You, you know, I think that's what David Sandy, said. Eugene Volokh. Uh, I don't think American rights should be obsolete just because foreign countries don't agree no, with I'm us talking that. About, No, I'm not making that argument. I'm simply talking about nomenclature, that it's one thing to say we in America are committed to certain rights, some of which look very, very odd to the rest of the world. Uh, we could talk about hate speech in this context, and you and I both agree that hate speech is protected by the First Amendment. Most countries around the world don't protect hate mm -hmm. speech, and they're decent liberal countries who simply have a different understanding of what free speech means. All I'm saying is that an argument based on the particularities of American culture is very different from an argument based on human All right. rights. David Copeland, you'd like to respond to that? The United States is unique with its exclusionary rule against illegally seized evidence being used in court. We have much stronger rules against the uh, establishment of religion uh, than, than most other countries do. Uh, but I think the fact that many countries have gone away from what was traditionally their res respect for much of their history of the right to arms and of the right of self-defense uh, does not denigrate that right from existing at all as a human right. As the Supreme, United States Supreme Court said, the right to assemble and the right to bear arms are both found wherever civilization Which countries exists. have moved away from the basic right of self-defense? Oh, Name England, a country? England. 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 The self-defense? You mean in, they in haven't practice. enacted stand-your-ground laws? No, it means, it, it means they, their gun laws are structured no, no, so no. that as I'm a practical matter it's impossible. No, 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 I'm talking about self-defense. 
Great Britain common law provides for a fundamental right of self-defense. I challenge you to name one country that has abolished the right of self-defense. England has gravely restricted it in practice. Fortunately, under intense popular pressure, they had some reforms a couple of years ago which restored some of it, but they have a pr- principle of proportionality. Of course so, they do, well, no, that makes sense. That's no, a human right, too. Not as it, not as it works in England, because if you're a woman and a guy weighs 200 pounds more than you, was beating you to death with his hands and fists, under English law, you can only f- could only fight back with your hands and fists. You couldn't shoot that person because then you, the victim woman, would be escalating. On the other hand, the NRA proposes a law whereby if you're in your car and can go from zero to 60 in one second, somebody comes over to you with a knife and you have the option of running away, you have the right to stand your ground, pull out your Uzi and kill him in cold blood. That's the NRA's position on self-defense. There are absurd NRA positions on self-defense. There are reasonable nuances. Again, we're not to, we're not debating. I prefer the, the English rule. Again, we're not to debating the, the, N- the NRA's stance on on gun control tonight. Um, but we are. We, this this point did come up um, in terms of the constitutional issue. Uh, you're, I'm speaking now to the side that's arguing that the constitution, uh, the constitutional right to bear arms, has outlived its usefulness. Your opponent said, "Well, you know, the constitution, the, the amendment may be there. The, uh, the right to bear arms may be enshrined in the law, but that doesn't mean that you can't limit gun control. That, in fact, the Heller decision specified uh, all sorts of situations, uh, guns in the hands of mentally ill people, felons, etc., that as it is, your hands aren't tied, in fact, to, to affect uh, gun ownership uh, laws in the United States. And I just want to have you respond to that and then hear what your opponents say you to your response. I, I agree with that. Most Americans, if you poll them, believe, A, that there is some kind of fundamental individual right to own firearms, and B, that there ought to be reasonable regulation. So the question is, who ought to decide at the end of the day what counts as reasonable regulation? I believe precisely because there's so much difference, good faith difference of opinion, that this is, in America of the 21st century, a subject for legislative resolution. You won't like some of the particular solutions, but that's what federalism and political diversity is about. But none of us on this panel is arguing that the state can never, ever limit guns. And at least as a political preference, neither Alan nor I would support in the United States in the 21st century a proposal to ban any and all firearms. But we're talking about reasonable regulation and who ought to make reasonable regulation. But they're saying that the existing amendment does not is not an obstacle to reasonable res- regulation. Well, but, but there's a tension here because, I mean, for the first 200 years of our history, the Second Amendment really played no role in American constitutional law, if you define that as judicial decisions, especially at the national level. It's only been in the last six or seven years that it's played any role. So the debate in part is, well, should the Second Amendment now really be invigorated so that five to four majorities of the Supreme Court will decide whether or not Martha Stewart should be able to have a gun for self-defense. And it appears, although Justice Scalia didn't offer even an iota of a reason, that he said, no, she doesn't get it. Or um, do you want these, say, hashed out? Um, Either the Second Amendment really has some genuine bite to it, 
or it's an expressive aspect of the Constitution All right. as it has as it was for roughly the first 200 years of our history. I want to give Eugene Volokh a chance history. to respond, but after that I'm going to come to questions uh, for you in the audience. And the way that will work is just raise your hand. I'll call on you. Well, a microphone will be brought to you. We'll ask you to wait until the mic reaches you so that the radio broadcast uh, folks and the folks listening on the live stream can hear you. I'll ask you to state your name, and I'll ask you to ask a question that's focused on the topic tonight. Eugene Volek. So let me answer Sandy's point and work in also a point he made about the, the background checks failing in the, uh, failing in the, Senate, in the Congress. Um, my colleague, Adam Winkler, at the UCLA Law School, who I don't think anybody would think is a hardcore NRA uh, supporting Second Amendment maximalist, I think made a very good argument that w- the thing that probably most defeated background checks was the proposed ban on the so-called assault weapons, which are semi-automatic weapons that are really functionally not much different than other kinds of weapons, but they were singled out for specific prohibition. He said that poisoned the well, that after assuring people, oh, we're not going to come to take your guns, people say, oh, they are coming to take our guns, and that caused people to dig in. You're talking about the functions of individual rights. One of the functions of individual rights is to provide enough of a detente in these kinds of uh, 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 social battles, especially culture war battles, that a side could say, look, we're confident enough they're not coming to take our guns that if what is on the table is a background check, it might pass just as it has passed in the past, it passed in the, in the, in the early 90s. Um, so, uh, so that's actually one advantage that the Second Amendment is securing an individual right, but more specifically, the call of the question or call is about the right to bear arms, specifically the right to bear arms being recognized as an individual right provides. If that were called into question, if that were repealed, or if people would say, well, we would repeal it if it, if it weren't for our better political sensibilities, that's the sort of thing that would poison the well further. So if you want to actually get a background check passed, you're much better off with a Second Amendment respected and firmly recognized as part of our Constitution and then questioned and said to be something that's ripe for appeal. Let's go to some questions from the audience. And right there on the end. Oh, let me just say one thing, because I need to do this for the radio broadcast, and I appreciate you waiting a second. Uh, Tonight's debate is being broadcast worldwide on our website, iq2us.org, and on fora.tv. And if you're actually watching the live stream, we want to hear from you, too, during this part of the uh, debate. You can send us questions on Twitter or Facebook with the hashtag GunsDebate, so we won't miss it. And be sure to include your city... Uh, state and your first name at least. And I want to remind you that we're in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion, the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. We're going to audience questions. Thank you. This question is for those arguing against the motion. Um, We talked about self-defense being a great spectrum from against personal security and also against the tyranny of the government. And we're also talking about how the Second Amendment in some circumstances is anachronistic. Can you let me know what it looks like today in the 21st century for someone to defend themselves with arms against the tyranny of the government? David Kopel. Well, to start with, it's normal defensive uses when you happen to be in a neighborhood that is politically powerless. The, uh, in Chicago, like a lot of places, 
There are some neighborhoods that have a very strong police presence and a strong deterrent effect, and there are other neighborhoods that, for whatever reasons, get essentially very little protection. And when the government steps aside so that the rapists and thugs can do to you as they will, uh, that is a form of, at least, of misgovernment. So people being able to protect themselves matters there. And you can look at, now in the United States, fortunately, we don't need to protect ourselves against government in the sense that we're doing in 1776, but you can look around the world at the various tyrannies uh, that exist and people sometimes using guns successfully to protect themselves. And I would point out, every genocidal government of the last century has assiduously disarmed the intended victims of genocide beforehand. And you can say, oh, well, if you have a handgun, what's the good is that going to do you against a tank? Well, they take the view, and they're the ones who are carrying out the genocide. They take the view that if there is any resistance, if even one of our, out of 100 of our secret police who are putting people on cattle cars gets shot, that could really mess up our but genocide d- program. David, let me, let me interrupt you a second, because I, I feel that you may be... Maybe slipped the question a little bit, not okay. fully. You, well, you, no, no, I, I'm not saying that to be disrespectful because the part of the, her question you, you answered, which was her question was related to where in the modern world in the United States would there be a militia resisting, uh, resisting its government? And you described a situation in which the government was absent and so it fulfilled the function that the government wasn't doing. But she asked a different question. Is there a scenario you see in this country, I think, in this country where you would need to take up arms against, against that absent police force or any, any other uh, force that represents the established government? Not presently, but nobody in, in the United States in 1760 thought they'd have to be fighting the British 15 years later. And nobody, no sane person in Germany in 1930 thought that the country would fall would, within 30 years fall into the hands of genocidal maniacs. Well, how you do you can't explain predict the, the fact that the place. highest ratio of opposition to free availability of guns are in the communities that have been subject to genocide? The Jewish community, the African-American community, and other communities that have been subject to genocide are the ones that are most opposed to vigilante people in America having guns. Uh, there must be e- either you're smarter than they are or their self-interest is correct and you're wrong about genocide. You are uh Stereotyping those people. There's, there's far more diversity. I'm counting them. There, there's four farm. I'm, I'm polling them. I'm saying majority if, wins. If you, look at, if you look at the public opinion polls of the black community, they support gun ownership as a principle. They support the Second Amendment, and they actually have a favorable and view a much of the National Rifle Association. Than white Anglo Saxon Protestants, right? Blah, blah, blah. The point is... <laughs> now, that's an intelligent, oh, okay. that's an intelligent uh, response. Oh, so so, so your, your point is blacks are pro-NRA, but they're not as pro-NRA as white people, and therefore what? Therefore, it seems to me people know their own self-interest, and if you look at the ratio of people in various ethnic groups, I'm not stereotyping, as I say I'm polling, you see that gun ownership favorability depends a great deal on cultural background, on background, historical background, and the very people that have been most subject to genocide are the very same people generally that seem to have a which lower has, support which has, for gun Which has what to do with our motion. Can I It has to do with his point about genocide. What, okay, what does your point have to do with our can, motion? Can I offer uh, a slightly Eugene different Bowler. perspective? I actually, and this is directly related to the motion, I, I'm not sure to what extent 
uh, today, a private gun ownership in a country like America would be effective in stopping government tyranny. I think there are plausible arguments that may, by making tyranny more costly, it may make it less likely, even if ultimately they get super tyrannical, they could crush all opposition. Plausible arguments to the country. But the call of the question, recall, is whether the right to keep and bear arms has become obsolete. Uh, what I'm saying is there, were, there used to be two main functions, one deterrence of government tyranny and one assurance of self-defense. It's possible that today the first function is not really achievable, but the second function is very much out there. I don't see the right as having become obsolete if one aspect of it, given changes in the structure of the military and the security apparatus and changes in modern weaponry, uh, if, if that function is no longer uh, 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 usable, I'm not sure, but it may very well not be. All right. the other I want to bring remains. up another question right down. Um, very, very briefly, because I want to get I any more questions. I think we're dancing around the fact that there are at least thousands and maybe even a couple of million Americans who believe we do live in a tyranny and who are organized in militia movements, and all of the focus on self-defense and the idea that the Second Amendment, the original Second Amendment, is, is historically anachronistic with regard to, oh, everybody believes that the current United States is just wonderful. There are some people, I don't agree with them in terms of their own politics, but there are some people who don't think it's wonderful and who want to drill and know how to use arms against the possibility of engaging in armed revolt. Now, do you support that as a protected Second Amendment right? That I, should be constitutional. Oh, I'm sorry. Eugene, oh, take 15 seconds on this. Or, uh, I'm sorry. And the the right to drill? I think probably would be. I mean, if it's the actually a conspiracy, militia. if it's a conspiracy to actually engage in revolution, no. No, just to drill. Ma'am, why don't you stand up? Yep. Mm. Probably. You're wearing a button. That makes me nervous. <laughs> there, uh, Michael, come down this side. Sorry. <clears throat> if you can tell us your name or at least your first name, please. Yes, hello. My name is Leah, and I have a question for all of you, really, is why do you think the Second Amendment was intended to protect the rights of Americans to rise up against a tyrannical government when Article One in the Constitution allows armed citizens and militias to suppress insurrections, not to cause them? The Constitution defines treason as levying war against the government in Article Three. I'm going to stop you there because you had a question mark after I did. the first part. I did. You know, I, I think there's a deceptively easy Sandy answer Levinson. to your question. The 1787 Constitution did not include uh, the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment, as Alan would emphasize, is part of the Bill of Rights that were added in 1791 um, at the behest of people who really were very suspicious of this new national government that was created by the Constitution. And you know, one could quote Emerson <clears throat> or Walt Whitman that the Constitution contains contradictions and you have put your finger on a very key contradiction. Do you disagree enough with that to want to argue it, David Koppel? Uh, Supreme Court Justice Story would disagree that there was a contradiction there, as he explained in his treatises. The, an insurrection is an illegitimate violent, act, violent action against the government. But if the Second Amendment militias, led by their state governments, were ever necessary to overthrow a tyranny, that would not be an insurrection. Like the Civil that, War. That, that would be like a, the Civil War, th right? Let me talk, please. That would be a restoration of constitutional order. That's what Justice Story's viewpoint is. There's a, it would be a dictatorship 
that was the insurrection, that was lawless, that was at war with the Constitution itself. So was itself. the Civil War Wait, a legitimate Alan, hang one on, or not? Hang on. are you, David, are you done? Yes. Okay. What, Dave, uh, Alan, so please. Was the Civil War legitimate? Or was it a legitimate insurrection or an illegal insurrection? I, I, I have, I have uh, an answer to that. Uh, which, which Civil War? Do you mean the Civil War against the federal government or the Civil War that was fought between 1775 and 1781 no, in the, the U.S.? No, the one that we all refer to so the, the Civil answer War is with a capital T, a capital C, so and a capital W, a guy so involving the, Abraham Lincoln. Remember that one? So the was answer, that a legitimate insurrection? That so was the, led by state militias. So the answer is Someone help that me we think the, the Revolutionary question. War was legitimate, partly because we were we the ones won. on the willing side, winning side, but partly because we we think it was a just insurrection, that we think the Civil War is legitimate because it was an unjust insurrection. But to return to your question, it's an excellent question. But if you look at the framing era documents and the post-framing documents, and for that matter, the pre-framing documents, Sir William Blackstone's commentaries and the laws of England, it was understood that while obviously every government must be able to suppress revolutions against it, and it will, whether it's a tyrannical government or not, one merit that was seen at the time, again, I'm skeptical about it today, but was without question historically seen at the time in an armed citizenry, is it would preferably deter tyranny and, if necessary, overthrow it, recognizing that if it failed, they'd all be hung, hanged for treason. That was understood. All right, sir. Um, my name is John Donahue. Um, I thought I heard David Koppel say that uh, you were more likely to be shot as a burglar than to go to prison, which must be wildly off because tens of thousands of burglars are in prison and very few people are actually shot by homeowners. But my, my question goes to the issue of anachronism in light of the experience of other countries similar to the United States. So, for example, Australia, after experiencing... Sir, I, I, I just want to ask you to zoom in on your question. Yeah. Uh, so so to, to focus on Australia, 1996, they... They had experienced a, a horrific mass uh, murder, and 12 days later, they decided to abolish all semi-automatic weapons and to abolish the right to use guns. Sir, I'm sorry, I just just by the rules. I need you to not too much premise and just get to the question, please. Okay. So the question is, why, in light of the fact that their murder rate has dropped substantially since that time and is now about one fourth or one fifth the rate of the murder rate in the United States, do you? parade these horribles as emanating uh, from, from removing the, the Second Amendment if it seems as though uh, the, the Second Amendment operates more in the way that Alan Dershowitz has suggested as an impediment to uh, uh, avoiding homicide. Um, my, my concern with that question is I think that one of the debaters here said there's, that there's always going to be evidence on both sides on the impact and that we're, we would just get into descending studies. Well, the question uh, and, it, asked, and it would be a wash. Uh, you know, I think well, no, I, I, because we have other things that we want to get on to. So well, I would like to move on to them. Well, so, I, I just want to say for the record, I'm not sure that there are factual assertions behind that That's exactly right. And these guys will say it is, and you'll have studies, and none, but nobody here has read them. <laughs> Sir, um, you were with us before, weren't you? Yes, I was. How old were you last year? Uh, uh, Twelve. You were 12 last year? Well, 13, I think. I don't remember right. exactly you, what you it asked was. It, <laughs> you did a great question at our, uh, on our Israel debate, and you're with Collegiate School, right? Yes. This whole row. Welcome to our yes. debate, guys. Thanks for coming. So you have to be as good as you were last year when you were 12. Okay. So my question is for the people who are arguing uh, against the motion. And my question is, if I think I've noticed... There's something that I'm a little unsure of in your argument that I think is a bit of a contradiction. You've argued that 
you're not going to be able to successfully impede the right, uh, the ability of criminals to gain weapons. You used Martin Luther King being politically assassinated as an example of that. Yet, you've also sort of stated that... Uh, hey, just because you're 14 doesn't mean you have to zoom in on... You can't zoom in on a question, okay. so, so, so go for it. <laughs> if, let's see, will, how will having political assassins not be able to access guns be related to people able to defend themselves against burglars in their home? If a burglar is able to get a gun, isn't that something a bit different than a political assassin who's willing to throw away their life? And so okay. this sort of yeah, self-defense okay. situation. Very quickly, David Kopel. As your question recognizes, there's a wide variety of criminals with different intensities of motivation. And so a political assassin is sort of at the top of the scale in terms of long-term planning. And you can have other criminals <laughs> at, who are much more casual. So are there is it uh, one of the anti-gun control arguments is what you're referring to the futility thesis, that nothing you do is ever going to stop criminals from having guns. And that is true for many criminals who are determined to get guns. Can you, at the margins of, you know, 1% or 5%, uh, delay when they get the gun? Or can you you also have laws that say, well, we can't really shut down the black market, but we can say that if you're a convicted felon for a genuinely violent crime and you're found carrying a gun, that there's going to be a severe sentence. And, that ha- and the re- studies do show that has some deterrent effect on them carrying guns. So okay. I, I think you're I right. Wanna, you can't, you can't I, at the I, margins I, I, help Again, on these that. questions are, you know, I'm sorry to be a stickler about this, but we'll, we'll wander all over and you're going to have to vote on the on this amendment language shortly, and that's why I'm trying to keep the questions focused on that. So, uh, sir, I hope you're going to deliver for me. Here comes the mic. And it's a tough one, by the way. I don't think this is particularly easy to frame a question on this one. Hi, uh, my name is Vinicius Fortuna. Uh, I have a question to David and Eugene. Um, So if you guys were to write a constitution from scratch, uh, what words would you put in place of the Second Amendment to properly uh, represent the point of view you are defending? Great question. Uh, and how you know, a language that you could come up with that would defend against these guys and give you what you want. Uh, who would like to take that, David Kopel? I think or Eugene's about to give you a quote, but the, the short answer is, yeah, is it, <laughs> modern, modern state constitutions say it in, in modern language. And so we could, any one of those recent ones, Wisconsin, uh, for example. You would so, take out that whole militia thing. So let me, let me read to you the 1998 Wisconsin uh, provision, which was uh, co-backed by then-State Senator Russ Feingold, not exactly the most conservative of conservatives. Uh, it, it says, the people have the right to keep and bear arms for security, defense, hunting, recreation, or any other lawful purpose. So that's what Senator Feingold was willing to, to, to say. Um, I actually don't think that the preamble today, the, the, the militia clause today, is, is terribly helpful. If I had to rewrite it, I probably, and if I weren't worried about uh, the possible political blowback that might cause even more entrenchment on this issue, uh, I, I probably wouldn't Eugene, think that... When, uh, just but, when you're turning your head, can you be careful it. of the mic? Uh, so I probably wouldn't uh, include it. And I actually wouldn't include hunting, recreation, or any other lawful purpose. I think that is something that could be left... To the, to the pro, um, uh, political process. But I think the people have the right to keep in bare arms for security and defense. I think Russell Feingold, that's the one of the few things that I'm going to agree with Russell Feingold. On. I'd like to see what the other side would say to yeah, that. Uh, um, Sandy Levinson. I mean, two quick things. I 
like state constitutions and their ability to experiment. One of the things I like about state constitutions is that, with almost no exception, they're all easier to amend than the U.S. Constitution. So if the good people of Wisconsin should decide in the next 10 years that maybe this is too broad, then it's really very easy to amend the Constitution. One of the problems with the United States Constitution is that it's next to impossible to amend, so that we are stuck with the language of 1787 or 1791, which you're happy to jettison, but which does involve, in fact, rewriting the history of the Second Amendment and rewriting what many people thought was the original meaning of the Second Amendment. Uh, right there. Ben. Hi, my name is Stephanie, and I have a question. Um, does the Second Amendment protect the right to bear unsafe or unregulated firearms as a product? And what is the government's role in, in ensuring that firearms are safe to use, reduce accidents, and to uh, the misuse of firearm products, especially for by young children and by minors? Thank because you. Because when you mentioned Chicago... Those are um, kids under the age of 21, um, young people under the age of 21. That was a very, very well-focused question. I'm, gonna, I'm assuming it was to this side, uh, arguing against the motion. Uh, Those David things Copa. you mentioned are legitimate governmental purposes. And the question, if in pursuit of those legitimate governmental purposes, what are the particular laws which advance them? And do those laws significantly harm the ability of law-abiding people to use guns for lawful purposes. And you can, have, you can look at different laws on these subjects, and I'd say some fail the test and some pass the test. And I should just say, not a single Second Amendment decision or, state de or decision under any of the 44 state constitutional rights to keep in bear arms contradicts that or, or undermines uh, uh, the, the safety f uh, f uh, issue that, uh, that, that you're raising. So if, a, if for example, a uh, um, state court imposes liability because a gun is prone to misfiring or something like that, no constitutional problem. There's an interesting debate as to what the proper regulatory scheme for that is, but the Second Amendment is not an obstacle well, to those kinds of things. Well, that's what you say, but just remember what oh, David said. David said that he's going to mount a Second Amendment constitutional challenge to New York's law that prevents you from taking your gun out of the state. So there's always the threat, if there's a constitutional amendment, that every regulation will be challenged. The NRA thinks everything is unconstitutional. Locks on guns, safety provisions for guns, making sure guns are stored properly. The NRA can make a constitutional argument against any reasonable regulation. I think so everybody, the has ACLU. To admit, everybody has to admit that if there is a constitutional amendment, the presumption is against regulation. If there is no constitutional amendment, the presumption is in favor of regulation. That's why we ought not to constitutionalize this right. We ought to constitutionalize the right of self-defense, but not the derivative right of gun ownership. Alan, this is like saying that the Fourth Amendment, the problem with the Fourth Amendment is that every single criminal defendant can try to argue for reading it extra broadly and excluding all the evidence against him, and they do, and, and they, they lose. lose. 
We judge the Fourth Amendment by how it's actually been interpreted rather than by some, uh, some possibility that maybe it's going to be over-interpreted. The Second Amendment, no, the right to keep and bear arms has been around at, at, at individual rights since 1776 mm. at the state Except level. There nobody are knew it. Dozens, there no, are you dozens of court decisions from the 1800s onto the 1900s and into 2000s uh, interpreting it. None of them have had uh, the effect of striking down any such laws. Sir, could you come down just a few steps so the camera can see you're in a little bit of shadow? Just uh, three steps. That's great. Sure. Thank you. Uh, name's Eric. So my question is that, uh, so on the campus where Staten Island College now sits was Willowbrook, where the state of New York interned the mentally ill children to die. If we believe that the right of self-defense is to protect vulnerable citizens, which you've all said, and given that uh, in the press, TV news, and even here tonight, we demonize the mentally ill, uh, is it not a violation of the civil rights of the mentally ill to bear arms? I think it's a legitimate question. That is to say... Wait, you're saying is it a, 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 a violation of their right to deny them the ability right. to bear arms? Yeah. Okay. I mean, Justice Scalia, without presenting any argument, announced in Heller that just as Martha Stewart could be deprived of her right to self-defense, it apparently was the case that all laws limiting the rights of mentally ill people, a notoriously accordion-like term, could be limited. Uh, I presume that all of us agree there are some mentally ill people who shouldn't be allowed close to a gun. I would imagine that as a policy matter, not as a constitutional matter, all of us might well agree that there are some mentally ill people whom we would, in fact, allow to have a gun if we really do take self-defense very seriously. The, this, what you might want is legislature, city councils, etc., to write very careful legislation and tell us which is which, rather than to leave this up to judges who, quite frankly, have no training whatsoever in discerning differences of level of mental illness or have no training in trying to figure out what, if anything, the data actually support. Would the other side like to respond? Sandy, that's David exactly Copeland. what Justice Scalia's opinion does, is he basically says that in terms of gun bans for people who are mentally ill, that the Second Amendment, as he interprets it, is not going to intervene, and it's going to be left to the political process. Now, the Gun Control Act of 1968, the main federal law, is a lifetime gan ban on gun prohibition by anybody who has ever – ban on gun possession by anybody who has ever been found to be, in the words of this – congressional statute, our laws, mentally defective. I think that that is uh, reflected the uh, somewhat prejudices of the time. And I think as Sandy has said, that there, is, there are some people, a very mentally ill people on the whole, are less violent than the general public. There's also a small subset of them who are dangerously violent and absolutely should be prohibited from possessing guns. But I would also, I, I agree with you that the, the, the breadth of the current prohibition, I don't think uh, fully makes sense based on current understandings and social science. So there's a touch of agreement on this. <laughs> All right, and that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness.
Remember, we had you vote just before the debate began, and immediately after this closing round of closing statements, we're going to have you vote a second time. The team whose numbers have changed the most will be declared our winner. On to round three, closing statements. Each debater will make a closing statement in turn, uninterrupted. They will be two minutes each. Our motion is this. The constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. And here to summarize his position against this motion, to persuade you to vote against, Eugene Volokh. He's professor of law at the UCLA School of Law. Um, so we've, uh, we've heard all sorts of things about, uh, about death, about uh, assassination, about futility. I want to end this on a cheerful note. I want to tell you about some good news. Uh, so from 1993 on, they, uh, the size, the amount of guns in America increased from 200 million to probably about 300 million. Now, you might think it's good news or not, but that's not what I'm claiming is good news. Likewise, from the mid, in the mid-80s, about 10 states, any law-abiding adult could carry a gun concealed uh, on his person just by getting a license, except for one of the 10. You didn't even need a license. That state, it turns out, was Vermont. Uh, now that number is over 40. During that time, during that time, I'm not going to say, I'm not making a causal claim here. Uh, I'll tell you the claim I'm making in a moment. Uh, during that time, um, the, the homicide rate and the firearms homicide rate basically fell by a factor of two. Uh, the the general violent crime rate and the, non, and the um, gun violent crime rate basically fell by a factor of roughly three to four. I will tell you the number that was so shocking, I thought it was just nonsense spread on the Internet. But if it is, it's spread on the Internet by the Bureau of Justice Statistics. So that gives it some special claim as nonsense goes. Uh, so I, don't th- I think it's probably not nonsense. The r- serious violent crime with guns against youths age 12 to 17 fell by a factor of 20, by 95%. Now, I'm not saying that the growing gun stock caused that. There's actually a hot debate about that. I, I don't know what the right answer is. But it seems to have happened in spite of the growing gun stock. We'd think, if some of the arguments we've heard are correct, that the result would have been vast amount of bloodshed. It hasn't been. Something worked. We don't know what. Nobody really quite knows what. But something has caused a tremendous and sustained decline of crime. We should be looking to see what that was. It wasn't gun control. Maybe it wasn't gun decontrol. It was something. That's Eugene what Volk, we should be focusing thank you very on. Much. And not guns. Your time is up. Thank you, Eugene Volek. Our motion is the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. And here to summarize his position in support of this motion to persuade you to vote for it, Sanford Levinson, author of Framed America's 51 Constitutions in the Crisis of Governments, Governments and a professor of government and professor of law at the University of Texas in Austin. Sanford Levinson. Right. It's no surprise that my friend Eugene Volek makes very, very powerful, eloquent arguments about the public policy of gun control. But that's not what we are debating this evening. The question is to what extent any particular policy should be constitutionalized, which at the national level means that it's close to written in stone and impervious to any change in the future. And I really do think when you vote, that ought to be the principal question you're asking, not whether you believe a particular policy in 2013 makes sense, because if you constitutionalize it, you also have to say it's going to make sense in 2023, 2033, and ad infinitum. Secondly, I think David Kopel, um 
uses interestingly used, interestingly different language at different points in his argument. And he, too, has made very capable arguments. I don't know him so well as I know Eugene, so you shouldn't take anything amiss when I don't refer to him as my friend. I've known Eugene, you know, since he was a child almost. (laughs) Um, But at, at one point, David said that, I think it was Washington's policy, no rational person could agree with it. Uh, okay, it really doesn't matter. These are uninterrupted. Now, I really don't think it's a case that you have to be a lunatic to agree with Michael Bloomberg. Maybe he's got the wrong policy, but it seems to me that the rationality test, at least the way that lawyers use it, really does require that you believe the other side is truly lunatic. But what was telling is that in his more recent comment, he said, in effect, that there are legitimate reasons for all – there are reasonable people who disagree. And Sanford Levinson, I'm sorry. Okay. Your time is up. And Thank you. Can disagree. Our, 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 our motion is the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. And here to summarize his position against this motion, David Kopel, research director at the Independence Institute and associate policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Professor Dershowitz wants to relitigate the constitutionality of the Civil War. Well, that settled, actually, the question that we have for tonight in our political process. As of 1850, the Bill of Rights, as interpreted by federal courts, was only a limit on the federal government and did not apply to the states. And then we had the Civil War and the terrible violations of the rights of the freedmen that happened after the Civil War when the southern states abolished slavery in name but tried to keep the freedmen in de facto servitude and subjugation by saying they could only have public assemblies when they got special permission and by saying they needed a special permission, if ever, that they could possess firearms for protection. And again, that was part of the Ku Klux Klan strategy of disarming them. The country recognized that not only were the oppressions of the freedmen under these black codes, the new slave codes, human rights violations in themselves, but that the lack of civil liberty in the South had been one of the important causes of the war because it led to the suppression of speech, criticizing slavery, and poisoned the political dialogue there. And so the country said... We love diversity. We love the vastness of our country and the different state experimentations. But some experiments are so dangerous that they lead to catastrophe. And we tried the experiment of saying, we'll just leave it up to state governments to protect civil liberties. That's not enough. We need to set a national baseline on human rights. And the 14th Amendment was enacted to make the Bill of Rights, including especially the First and Second Amendments, applicable to the states. The baseline of the Second Amendment does not outlaw all gun control, and it allows Montana to go much further in protecting gun rights than New York City does. But it says everywhere that there are American citizens, every government must respect the baseline of the fundamental civil rights contained in our Bill of Rights. Thank you, David Kopel. Our motion, the constitutional right to bear arms, has outlived its usefulness. And here to summarize his position for the motion, Alan Dershowitz, professor of law at Harvard Law School. I ask you to vote for the motion based largely on what Professor Volokh has brilliantly argued. He has conceded that he wouldn't include a militia 
in his model uh, uh, Bill of Rights. He also has conceded that he wouldn't constitutionalize the right of hunting. By making those two arguments, he has conceded the basic proposition that the Second Amendment, the way it's currently written, is anachronistic and has outlived its usefulness. He would substitute another amendment for that, an amendment much like the one that he said was passed in Wisconsin. It seems to me that they have conceded away the basic argument, namely that the Second Amendment, as written, is anachronistic. What's left? What's left is, do we really want militia groups uh, that are armed today and armed under the Second Amendment to have the right to confront our government and try to conduct yet another revolution of the kind that we had back in the American Revolution and the Civil War? It seems to me the answer to that is quite clearly no. Sigmund Freud had a very famous statement back uh, 100 years ago in which he said, quote, the first human who hurled an insult instead of a stone, was the founder of civilization. The First Amendment protects insults. It does not protect stones. It does not protect violence. We could live very comfortably with a First Amendment and without a Second Amendment. I don't want to amend the Bill of Rights because I worry that other things could happen. But I do want to make it very clear that the Second Amendment, with its emphasis on militias and hunting, and with no mention of self-defense, has outlived its usefulness. Therefore, I urge you to vote yes, and let's begin a debate on whether we should have an amendment protecting the right of self-defense, not the right of guns. Thank you, Alan Dershowitz. And that concludes our closing statements. And now it's time to learn which side has argued the best. We're going to ask you again to go to the keypads at your seat and to push the button that will register your vote. Remember, the motion is this. The constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. If you now side with this motion, with this team, push number one. If you are against this motion, if you're with this team, push number two. If you became or remain undecided, push number three. And we'll have the results in uh, about 90 seconds from now. So while that's happening, what I'd like to do, uh, first of all, is say that um, our, 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 goal in this, uh, our goal in this debate was to touch on this topic, but in a way that, uh, that maybe you've never heard it argued before and to have it argued well. And uh, I really think that we succeeded in doing that thanks to the spirit of, uh, of fairness and decency all of these debaters brought to the stage. And as you, you could see me struggling with shaping this question, into, we're not used to framing it this way. So everybody who got up and asked a question, even if I didn't take it, I appreciate that you got up and tried. I can obviously sense the passion that everybody in this room feels about this issue. So to everybody who asked a question and to those who didn't get to, I really want to thank you as well for getting up and moving that along. Um, We'd like to have you uh, tweet about this debate. Um, use the Twitter handle at IQ2US and hashtag GunsDebate. Uh, you can join the 43,000 NRA members who have, <laughs> who have... And we say welcome to Intelligence Squared US. We're, gl yeah. 
We're glad to have you. We're glad you discovered us. Our next debate uh, at the Kaufman will be on Wednesday, December 4th. The motion on that debate, at that debate, will be don't eat anything with a face. Uh, For the motion, uh, Dr. Neil Bernard, he's a clinical researcher who studies the effects of diet on health. His partner is Gene Bauer. He's president and co-founder of Farm Sanctuary. Time magazine calls him the conscience of the food movement. Uh, arguing against Chris Masterjohn, who is a nutritional sciences researcher and proponent of the paleo diet. Anybody on that? No, you don't have to raise your hand. Oh, you raise your hand. Okay. Uh, let's all look. Um, and Joel Salatin, he's a third-generation alternative farmer who's made famous in Michael Pollan's uh, bestseller, The Omnivore's Dilemma. Next Wednesday, uh, November 20th, we're going to be in Washington, D.C. in partnership with the McCain Institute. We're going to be debating this motion there, Spy on Me, I'd Rather Be Safe. Uh, tickets for that are free, and if you get down to D.C., come see us. Um, and tickets for all of our remaining fall debates are available through our website, site www.iq2us.org. Uh, if you can't join our, our live audience, of course, you can watch us on the live stream, as I believe a lot of people are doing tonight. And you can listen to all of our debates, including this one, on NPR stations across the country. Uh, you can check your local listings for air dates and times, and you can hear yourself applaud. Um, <laughs> Make sure to uh, visit our websites for up-to-date information and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Okay. And, and by the way, we're, we're always open to ideas for debate topics, so you can send those in. We, we just, um, you know, think of some, in terms of something that's really uh, vital and that really is a dichotomy of views and send it in, and we're, we're very interested in hearing those. Okay. So we have the final results in now. Our motion is this. The constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. The way we do this, you've listened to the arguments. We had you vote before the debate and again after the debate. And the team whose numbers have changed the most in percentage point terms will be declared our winner. So here are the results. Before the debate, on the motion, the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. 64% agreed with the debate. 18% with that motion, sorry. 18% were against and 18% were undecided. So those are the first results. Remember, you have to beat your starting number by more percentage points than your opponents. Here now are the results of the second vote on the constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. The team arguing for the motion, their second vote was 74%. They went from 64% to 74%. They picked up 10%. That is the number to beat. Against the motion, their vote now, their first vote was 18%. Their second vote was 22%. That's up only four percentage points. It means the team arguing for the motion has narrowly won this debate. The constitutional right to bear arms has outlived its usefulness. That motion is carried. Our congratulations to all of our debaters, and thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time.